podcast for dads who love music, made by dads who love music. And now, your hosts, Josh and Joe. Hello, and welcome to Dad Rocks, the podcast about being a dad and loving music and how the two intersect in our lives. I'm Josh, one of the hosts of the show. On today's episode, Joe, Steve, and I welcome our very first guest, veteran music writer and critic Rob Mitchum. Rob has written for publications such as Pitchfork, Paste, MTV, the Chicago Tribune, and the University of Chicago, and currently has a podcast with Stephen Hyden, another rock writer, called 36 from the Vault where they discussed the collection of official Grateful Dead bootlegs known as Dick's Picks. We asked Rob to be on the show to discuss the term dad rock. He famously or infamously used the phrase in a review of Wilco's 2007 album Sky Blue Sky for Pitchfork. And last year he wrote an article in Esquire called I Introduced the Term Dad Rock to the World, I Have Regrets, where he reflects on his initial Wilco review now that he is a dad himself. However, as Joe and I did some research on Rob's work, we realized that we had a lot more questions for him, specifically about his time at Pitchfork and his love of the Grateful Dead. While all of this could tie into the overall idea of Dad Rock, we wanted to make sure that our listeners knew what they were going to hear, which is an hour-long conversation that four music nerds had. There may be a few parenting tidbits in there, but it's mainly about music. So we're going to jump right into the conversation, but don't worry, we'll still give you some music picks at the end of the show. So here is our conversation with Rob Mitchum. We hope you enjoy. So, Rob, thank you so much for coming on to Dad Rocks. It really is an honor for us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So we want to ask you about the Esquire article that was mentioned in the intro. Tell us your thoughts of why you chose to include the phrase in describing Wilco at that time. Yeah, so the saga <laughs> of how I attached Dad Rock to Wilco, it, it's kind of a long story and uh, hopefully not too boring. I talked about it a little bit in the Esquire article, but uh, since that article, the New York Times had an article about Dad Rock. And in that article, it said that I coined the term Dad Rock, which is not true. Uh, but now that it's in the New York Times, I guess <laughs> I have to just live with it because that's the paper of record, right? So yeah. what they say is is truth. Yeah. So I, I didn't come up with the term Dad Rock. It, it turns out Dad Rock dates back to the 90s uh, in the British press, British music press. Uh, and they used it to describe sort of the classic rock revival bands like o Oasis or Coolest Shaker or bands that really had kind of like a 60s, 70s throwback sound. And it was an insult. Those were like in this, the old Blur versus Oasis uh, rivalry <laughs> days. Uh, and Blur was the forward thinking band and Oasis was the backwards thinking band. And so people on Team Blur called them dad rock when they wanted to, to make them feel bad. So if you fast forward then to the early 2000s, uh, I'm on staff at Pitchfork. At the time, the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot came out. I was all in on it. I didn't write that review. It got a perfect 10.0. Uh, another Pitchfork writer wrote that one. But there was a lot of discussion on our staff message board about it. And uh, there was a, another writer for Pitchfork named Chris Ott, who was, was and is a very confrontational type of guy. Uh, and he called uh, Woco Dad Rock. And I took mm -hmm. it very personally. I thought, oh, man, Woco, they're pushing the envelope of what indie rock is capable of. How dare you call this Dad Rock? <laughs> but it, it stuck in my head. 
And I wrote the blurb for the year end list for Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and tried to turn it around on Chris. And I called it Dad Rock. But I said, if, if this is what dads are listening to, then that's that's great. It's great that dads are listening to such experimental music. But then uh, Wilco kept making albums and I was reviewing them and I reviewed A Ghost Is Born and kind of liked it, kind of didn't like it, gave it sort of a, a, a lukewarm review and then reviewed Sky Blue Sky and I really didn't like Sky Blue Sky at all. Uh, so right in the lead, I said that uh, Sky Blue Sky exposed the dad rock gene that <laughs> was always lurking beneath the surface of Wilco uh, and, you know, turned it into the insult that uh, I, I first heard it as from Chris. And, you know, I wrote probably 200, 300 reviews for Pitchfork. Uh, and all those reviews are 800 words long or so, but mm -hmm. those were like the two words that stuck <laughs> <laughs> that really struck a nerve. And you never know as a critic, what is going to be like the thing you say that, you know, really gets a lot of attention yeah. or really, as I say, strikes a nerve with the audience. But for some reason, uh, attaching the dad rock label to Wilco at that moment in time sort of rode the crest of a like kind of a Wilco backlash, I would say. And it, just stuck to them forever. And, you know, to this day, they are kind of the, the face of dad rock for a lot of people. But yeah, the, the meaning of the term is, has changed a lot over those years too. So it's, it's been an interesting ride. I am a, a big Wilco fan. I, I was late to the party. So, uh, you know, when I was reading through your reviews of uh, Sky Blue Sky and went back and re read through A Ghost is Born, I was trying to like think about it. I wanted to ask you as a, as a rock critic, um, do you think that bands... Like is once you have a dad rock label, is are you a dad rock band or is it based on the album or song? Because, you know, for me, when I listen to Star Wars by Wilco, it sounds nothing like dad rock. It sounds much more experimental. There's the elements of noise rocker in there. And, you know, to me, that was like a, a slight left turn, you know, and then they made a, another right turn with the last two albums where it's got much more soft and, you know, kind of like low key. So, I, you know, for you, do you think a band, once you label them dad rock is specifically dad rock anymore? Or is it, you know, kind of go with whatever they put out. Yeah. I mean, I, so I agree. I have kind of come around on Woco myself and really enjoyed the last few albums. And I think they have gotten to a place where they just kind of make the albums they want to make and they don't worry about anybody else. And, you know, bands that get to that place tend to do pretty consistently good work. Yeah. Sky Blue Sky. The reason why I like, pulled out the dad rock label was that was the album to me where it felt like they had stopped really pushing the envelope and doing experimental deconstructive sorts of indie rock that they were doing on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot right. and even on a ghost is born just to my ears, not as successfully uh, and started falling back on you know, sort of safer, older influences. So I think, you know, people compare that era a lot to like, you know, Steely Dan or, sort of 70s folk rock, not quite like AM Gold type stuff, but, you know, definitely not the, you know, really freaky out there avant-garde touches that they had been doing for the couple albums right. before that. So I think, you know, even though it got stuck on the band forever, I think it really is most accurately applied to that album where I think they were playing it a little safer. And Tweedy, Jeff Tweedy was drawing upon his, you know, sort of formative influences a little more than he, he was doing on other records. But of course, you know, the, the label lived on for Woco. And really, I mean, the interesting thing for me 
with dad rock is that the things that I would in indie rock that I would describe as dad rock (laughs) or being very safe and being very almost regressive sort of in, uh, in terms of musical experimentation, uh, that kind of became the defining sound of indie rock Mm. (laughs) in the late two thousands and early 2010s. Cause I think, you know, like, as Wilco sort of aged out of the spotlight a little bit, uh, the National became arguably the biggest indie rock band. And the National, to me, are the epitome of dad rock. They are like dad rock personified. <laughs> that sort of became the norm for indie rock. Uh, whereas, you know, in the early 2000s, I think there were a lot more interesting and experimental things happening. Just sonically, indie rock got a lot safer. Joe, you, you had a question? Yeah, for sure. This is Joe. And it's funny, with, with Wilco, Sky Blue Sky, just, I know we're talking a lot about it, but I'm a huge indie rock fan. But for some reason, before that, I had not really gotten into Wilco. And I heard all the hype. I knew about Yankee Foxtrot and the documentary film and everything. So Sky Blue Sky was the first album I really like dove into. And I just became a dad, actually, that year. And I really liked it. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it. And it definitely had the Beatles kind of Abbey Road vibe to it, you know, sound. I know you mentioned the National too. I was just about to say the National, but are there other bands that you would consider, you know, dad rock that jump off the top of your head? I don't know, like the whole sort of national scene, I guess, like, yep. like Bonnie Iver kind of strikes me as that too, even though, you know, he does do some more experimental things from time to time. It just became sort of like the defining sound of indie for a while. And I think is still sort of lingering around and like the national aren't going away. They have now, no. you know, gone now they're working with Taylor, Taylor Swift. Swift, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> now it's like a sound that, you know, are one of the biggest pop stars in the world wants to borrow. But the, the interesting thing to me, I think is that, and I talk about this in the Esquire article, uh, dead rock kind of has a sliding timeline. So for Jeff Tweedy, who was 40 when he made sky blue sky, that was, you know, his dad rock was, 70s rock right so he's drawing upon the music he listened to when he was a teenager but for me who is 41 now i think of dad rock as bands like like pavement (laughs) or like built to spill (laughs) which you know for me those are like the like late teens early 20s bands and it it kind of it dawned on me that dad rock while at the time i was when i reviewed sky blue sky i was specifically referring to like classic rock 70s fm radio classic rock I think it's really just like musical comfort food for people. Like it's the music that you listen to when you first fell in love with music. And so at a certain point in your life, you go back to that music when you need something that is safe and reassuring and comforting. Right. Uh, You know, it's funny reading back at the Esquire article, which ran last year for me, it was mostly like I am turning 40. I've got kids. Mm -hmm. I'm very busy now. I don't have time to chase down new music. So I need sort of the I fall back on the old favorites and sure you know now a year later i'm like now i never leave the house (laughs) (laughs) like there's no live music everything is extremely stressful and i'm even you know i'm falling even harder on the old favorites so dead rock definitely has its its utility for sure and uh, this is joe again i'm I'm also 41 and i've been thinking a lot about the term we knew you were coming on me and my wife play a lot of like nirvana just like you're saying pavement early mid nineties music around the house for our kids, like Pearl Jam, you know, all those Soundgarden, all those kind of bands. So to me, almost those bands have become dad rock as well in a different style. And I've talked on the podcast about some success I've had, but a lot of failures of trying to get my kids. I have two kids, 13 and nine into all the bands that I like. I don't know how old your kids are, but I don't know if you've tried to, you know, start playing music around the house or 
try to get your kids into the, in, into the bands that you like? Yeah, uh, my kids are eight and three. That's uh, two boys. Mm-hmm. They okay. pretty much just ignore my music. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they, they've heard it so much that they just kind of tune it out. They have a great filter in their ears for not paying attention. But, uh-huh. you know, a couple things have stuck. I try really hard not to be the like hipster dad that is like just latching upon something that's stuck yeah, and then buying sure. them little, you know, kid sized T-shirts and mm-hmm. Uh, putting out posters in their room and trying to influence them that way. Uh, but it's always kind of a pleasure. Like my, my older son for a couple of years, his favorite song was burning down the house. Oh, nice. We would put it on and he would just dance like a freak. And it was so funny, you know, enjoyable to watch. Uh, he never really got into any other talking head song. <laughs> we, uh, have watched stop making sense a couple times and both kids okay. seem to kind of enjoy it. Cause it's a pretty, uh, very visual you know, kinetic yeah. movie and there's a lot of fun dancing and stuff going on. It hasn't really stuck. <laughs> so no. I, I've, I've tried to not push it and, they think they are like sort of half aware that I have a Grateful Dead podcast <laughs> and ask me questions about it, but don't really, you know, care about the Grateful Dead. And they've got their own thing that their own taste that they're developing. And I'm someday, you know, maybe they'll be interested and I'll the floodgates will open. But uh, for now, I don't really try and push it on them. I just want to say that I did the same thing as your son, but to money for nothing. Uh, so <laughs> I used to dance to it all the time, but never listened to any other dire straits until I was much older. <laughs> I mean, I pick it up on classic rock radio, but you know, I had no idea it was them. So <laughs> you, you bring up uh, your Grateful Dead podcast and my father was a deadhead. So I grew up with some Grateful Dead, not crazy, you know, not listening to like any bootlegs or anything like that, but a lot of American beauty. Um, and, you know, had the Live 72 on vinyl that he would pop in every once in a while. Like, do you feel like the dead could be classified as dad rock? I mean, because it seems like they are or are they just, you know, in their own lane? They are like the, the godfathers of jam music. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, they're probably both. I think uh, what I always say about the dead is that they are like 10 different bands in one. And depending on what year you're listening to or even like particular songs within particular eras of the dead, they can be a completely different band. But I do think, you know, just by first and foremost, virtue of timing being a band that was at its biggest in the late 60s and 70s, they very much fall within that sort of classic rock definition of dad rock. And their most popular albums certainly are in that sort of country folk rock laid back vibe that also sort of encapsulates what people think of sonically when they hear the term dad rock. Uh, So, yeah, I would say they definitely are, but they're like, I don't know, graduate level (laughs) dad rock, maybe. (laughs) Because, you know, you can just get lost in an endless wormhole of Grateful Dead bootlegs and live albums and side projects and, you know, post Grateful Dead, you know, cover bands and continuations. And they're just an endless uh, well of dead rock <laughs> to, to research and study. So yeah, I think it's, it's fair to call them dead well, rock. Every stoner kid, you know, no matter what age or when they're brought up either is, you know, latching onto the dead and or fish. So, you know, it's one of those two, I guess fish now is probably dad rock as well in, in that vein. Yeah. It's, so I'm a, I'm a big, I'm an even bigger fish fan than dead fan, to be honest. And that's just, I think by virtue of when I was born, yeah. like <laughs> I, I've seen fish a ton. I never got to see the dead with Jerry. So uh, I'm a huge fish fan and they are like the dad rockingest band in the world right now because they're all in their fifties <laughs> and writing songs about like their kids growing up and how the world is just a big soul planet and everybody's happy <laughs> and all this stuff. I mean, it's like, and you know, they dress like hip 
hipster dads now. They have, you know, fitted plaid shirts and, you know, dad skinny jeans. John Fishman doesn't wear dresses anymore. He still wears okay. a dress. He's the exception <laughs> to the rule. Uh, the other ones are like right off the rack of like, uh, I don't even know what the hip dad store would be these days, but like it's uh, like a J crew or something like that. Maybe exactly. They've, they've come a long way from their geeky early days, but, and yeah, and all the people at fish shows are, you know, you know, it's 80% dudes in their forties. Like that's just their demographic and they hit it hard. So everybody is talking about how they got away from the kids for a weekend to, to go on fish tour. So just to like kind of bring that, the idea of the fish and the dead and, you know, jamming and noodling and stuff. When we were doing research, uh, I came across a video, which I had seen previously from Pitchfork. And I don't think you were there when they put this out about what dad rock is, like explaining what it, it is. And then they mentioned, oh, yeah. you know, like you said, how the artists kind of just pack it in and they just don't care what other people think. And they go the Steely Dan route, like into jazz almost. Like, do you really feel that that is the case where they're like becoming more experimental, but experimental with other genres. I, I don't know. Like I didn't understand what they were trying to say with that, because it just seems like you're just saying like, oh, when you get old, do you like jazz? Like, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Because I can tell you, I, have, I, think it's yeah, a little, I have a lot of friends yeah. who do not like jazz who are my age. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I think it's, it, it, it's less like jazz specifically and more like. You know, moving away from harder edge sounds to softer sounds, I would say. So, yeah, jazz, I think maybe the jazz thing comes from Steely Dan just being such a ubiquitous dad rock touch point. And they're a very jazz rocky band. Uh, But I think of it more as, yeah, more like folky or country rock uh, as being sort of the, the, the structure, like straightforward song arrangements and you know, maybe a, a where the experimental side comes in, moves away from being sort of like a being a raucous live act to being a studio experimenting act, like bands that are using the studio as an instrument right. and doing some things a little more slick rather than doing things raw and lo-fi and just knocking out records and getting back on the road sort of thing. Right. So, you know, I guess that's where the metaphor really works is it's you know, very similar to somebody going from their 20s where they're going out every night and getting trashed and having wild and semi-illegal adventures, uh, but then settling down in their 30s and 40s and getting married and having kids and, you know, maybe, you know, drinking some craft beers every once in a <laughs> while, but not uh, burning down the, the town. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, kind of analogous in that way where it's moving away from danger towards safety in my notes i was going to ask you like because like if 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 you believe like you know with jazz going that way if you believe that the addition of nels klein into wilco made them officially a dad rock band because you know he's he's an i know i know you have beef with him i read an excerpt from hayden about uh how you you and him have gotten to (laughs) lots of arguments about how you feel nels klein is like you know very self-indulgent but fish is you know fish is not or something like that and so i have the nels klein with medesky martin wood album and i know he's just this prolific guitar player. So I, you don't have to really answer that. I was just like, I was thinking about like, oh, maybe he thinks that because this jazz guitarist came in, that's what changed the band in, in, in that way. But so, yeah, th- that is like kind of my issue with Wilco of that era. And even somewhat today, 
though it, it's, it's worked better, is that I thought that when he first joined Woko, he overplayed, I think, on a lot of Woko songs and didn't really gel with what I wanted Woko to be. Uh, yeah. But I actually really like a lot of what Nels Klein does outside of Woko. I just always thought it was a weird mix that didn't really work for me, but there are legions of Woko fans who feel the other way. So I am probably wrong and they are right. <laughs> it's funny because I think, you know, I've, I've never figured out the right way to say his name. Glenn Kochi, Glenn Kotke, yeah, the drummer. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's uh, amazing. I love, as a drummer, I love him. Yeah, I do too. And he came from an experimental avant-garde background too before he played with Boko. But I think he brought, you know, incredible things to the band. Uh, whereas Nels Klein was like, I think really stepped into the role of lead guitarist in a way that I didn't appreciate at the time and still have my issues with. Yeah. I mean, I'm not to bring this into a make a Wilco conversation, but I, you know, but I was thinking about when you were talking about like with your A Ghost is Born review and I was thinking, well, you know, Jay Bennett had just left the band. Jay Bennett was a huge part of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and like, you know, that, that change, it became more of, while it was always like kind of the Jeff Tweedy show, now it was like officially the Jeff Tweedy show when Jay Bennett left and that really kind of changed the way it sounded because you know ghost is born like especially like the late greats and and theologians very much dad rock in that respect with the addition of nels klein into the band is definitely it's definite departure and it took me a while to get into impossible germany until it was like the second or third time i saw it live and then it was like <laughs> great yeah impossible germany is the one that steve Haydn and i always argue about because that song drives me up the wall <laughs> like that is just like the exact opposite of what i want from woko and he's like that's the most fish like woko song like how can you not like that song and i'm like I just do not like the the harmonized oh, guitar doodly dee part. Everybody loves that part except me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean there's like what band it was like Big Thief or somebody did an interview where they were like, the Impossible Germany guitar solo is the height of music to me. And I was like, oh my God, I can never listen to this band now either because I just cannot agree on that point. So yeah, I mean, I think people actually think more issue with my Ghost is Born review than my Sky Blue Sky review. I think a lot of Woco fans aren't really in love with Sky Blue Sky, but A Ghost is Born, people really like. And Steve always talks about how he likes it because Tweedy is playing lead guitar on it. And he's, you know, not a flashy guitar player and plays these like noisy solos, Yeah, which in theory I should like. But for some reason, that album just never really hit with me. And I think my personal perspective on Woko and Jeff Tweedy is that I think he does work best when he has a creative yeah. counterbalance or like adversary in the band. And that's why Uncle Tupelo was so good and why the early days of Woko with him and Jay Bennett kind of duking it out for who was the, the leader of the band can be really good. But he doesn't really have that anymore. And now he's sort of settled into his own thing, which I, as I said, I appreciate. But it's never been quite as good as their. their yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of the same way with a lot of bands. It, it'll be tough for me to like when I have this, you know, very set idea of what the band should sound like. It's hard for me to to get through. Like I, I was a huge Ben Folds five. Ben Folds like fanatic and as his solo work has progressed I've just gotten less and less into it because I'm like it doesn't sound like what he put out in the late 90s early 2000s and it's just it is sometimes hard to get over that the love you have of the early stuff especially when you latch onto it so hard right yeah for Woko for me like they were one of my favorite bands and it felt like a breakup <laughs> almost when I stopped yeah. liking them and you know I live you know near Chicago Woko is almost like the house band of Chicago like you just cannot sure like walk you can't go through a summer of music without 
ending up at a Woco concert. So I kept seeing them <laughs> and being like, this is, this is awkward. This is like running into an ex at a party. <laughs> like I used to love this band and I can see why I used to love them, but there's things I just yeah. hate about it now too. And I, I finally, I think it was like six or seven years ago when they did that tour opening for Oh Dylan. yeah, I saw that. That was with My Morning Jacket. Yeah. And Richard Thompson. Uh, and it was just a really great bill and it was a beautiful outdoor setting for it. And that was where I kind of like, I had my, I've come to terms. I'm, I'm, I'm at peace with Woko yeah. now <laughs> moment where I'm like, I appreciate them for what they are and what they've become. And they're never going to be my favorite band again, but uh, they're good in my book. So let's, uh, let's call it, yeah. call the truce. And uh, Rob, do you ever see the movie Boyhood? Because I have there's not, a really no. good, oh, oh that Richard uh, Linklater movie where he filmed, yeah. uh, you know, the boy in kind of real time. And there's this really great, I just, just came to me as dad rock scene where Ethan Hawke is the dad and his son's in the car and he plays a track from Sky Blue Sky huh. and he's going over. I don't know if he plays it or is this playing over while they're driving, but it's this very like touching moment. I think he does play it actually in the car. Like they made it really a prominent moment. I was just curious if you ever saw that because it, it's a good movie. Anyway, I want to ask you about Back to the Dead. Sure. And your your co-host, you mentioned Stephen Hyden on 36 from the Vault. He just published this article on the Dead's massive popularity lately. Mm-hmm. And it was something that we were just talking on the podcast for weeks. It seems like everyone's getting back into the dead, people that were never into them, younger people, older people, people our age. My wife's uh, nephew came over last weekend and he's into hip hop. He lives in Brooklyn and he had a, came in with a tie-dye Grateful Dead shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you're wearing a Grateful Dead shirt. It's just like everyone's back into them. And I never really fully got into them. I respect them. I had American Beauty and I know all the hits and stuff like that. Oh, what do you attribute to this like recent popularity over the last like five or six years? So it's funny. I think, uh, you know, Steve's article gets into this and did a great job. Steve and I agree on like everything with the dead pretty much, which it sometimes maybe makes for less of a good <laughs> podcast because like, <laughs> there's not a lot of uh, controversy. But we both agree on is that, um, you know, ironically, you can trace it back to the national, I think, because mm-hmm. they put out this big giant uh, oh, Day yeah, of the Dead compilation right. around that time, which was like every band in indie rock <laughs> every yes, indie rock yes. band of the last two decades doing grateful dead covers i think it's like five cds like if you actually have a physical copy of it it's just gargantuan and it, it is very uneven there's some great parts there's some terrible parts but what it did was uh i think finally clinch for people that the grateful dead could be cool again <laughs> that yeah. uh, the grateful dead were not uh you know untouchable territory and i think for people of a certain age they remember when in the 90s when the grateful dead were huge they were playing stadiums in the early yes. 90s at the same time that you know nirvana and grunge was happening they were like polar opposites it was like there was nothing less cool to somebody listening to nirvana than the grateful dead parking lot with all the people in tie-dye shirts you know playing hacky sack and smoking weed right it was like uh you had to decide which camp you were in and there weren't too many people who had a foot in each i just kind of happenstance lucked into it like the summer of 95 i got into pavement and fish the same year and so i was able to kind of straddle that uh but you didn't see that very often And so it's taken a really long time for that image to be dispersed, I think, and has really only happened in the last decade uh, where, you know, there was always like the people that would say like, oh, the Grateful Dead, I'm not down with the hippie thing. and I'm not down with the jams and it's just noodling and boring. But, you know, people don't know this, but they wrote really great songs, which is true. 
but it's also kind of like a condescending way of looking at the dead. It's like, yeah, that was one thing they did, but that wasn't what made them special. And then I think, uh, you know, as rock became maybe a little more marginalized in terms of pop culture, you know, those differences became smaller and smaller. So it didn't make as much sense to have this polarization of Grateful Dead and jam bands versus you know, punk rock and indie rock Sure. when rock became such a small segment of the musical landscape yep. that just sort of brought everybody together. So people got over sort of the corniness of the dead in the 90s with, you know, as as, his, as time went on too, and started to see, hey, they were doing some pretty amazing musical stuff and there's a lot to dig into. And, you know, the, it helps that the internet makes it so easy to dig into them. Because yeah, in the '90s when I was getting into them, I still traded tapes, you know, via the mail. Like I had to find somebody on Prodigy <laughs> who would uh, mail me a dead show, and I would mail them something back. But now you can go online and listen to, you know, every one of the Dead's 2,000 shows, and in some cases you could listen to like eight different recordings of a single show wow. and find the one that you like. And there's a ton of books and guides written about how to get into them. And so people <laughs> kind of just find, as I said, there's so many different versions of the Grateful Dead and people just find the version that they like. That's how they get started. And, you know, it's an addiction. Once you get started, you just keep wanting more. I actually never heard of this project and I, I'm looking at it now on the website. Did this coincide with the farewell tour, the, the tour that, that they did that Phil Lesh was on or was this before that or was it after that? Cause I feel like those shows at, at, uh, in San Francisco and in Chicago were like massive. Like I remember everyone was talking about those and yeah, I feel like Chicago. Yeah. I feel like that kind of brought them back into the the light a little bit too. That you know, the dead and company is, is touring. They were going to be touring again this summer. And I know a lot of people who were planning on going to see them again when I was tempted to go see them, you know, cause they're great. I, I didn't know if this compilation coincided with all of that happening. Yeah. I think it was a couple years before I'm, I'm not sure I'd have to do like a fact check on it, but, but uh, it was it, that was all kind of around the same time. Yeah. And so those shows were like the dead's 50th anniversary and were obviously a very big deal and got a lot of media hype. Yep. I went to the Chicago shows. It was a great time. It was not musically uh, that lasting, mm. I guess. <laughs> like I recently watched them again. They just showed them again for their fifth anniversary, like a web stream. And yeah, the music doesn't really <laughs> hold up, but like it was, you know, a pretty exciting event to be at. The thing with Dead & Company too, there's just not that many rock bands you can go see that can fill up a big venue, like a big stadium anymore. And there is something special about that experience. Yeah, for Who knows sure. if it'll ever come back. Yeah. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I, I remember like uh, another band that I don't really like that a lot of people like, of course, is U2. Oh. <laughs> I saw U2 at Soldier Field because I think Pitchfork asked me to write about it. So I got tickets and I was like, hey, you know, U2, like say what you will about them, but they put on a flashy yeah. good show, right? So I'm going to go yeah. see the U2 experience. And that was my first time seeing a show in Soldier Field, which for a concert, I think gets to like 75,000 people maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was sold out and it was just like, it was mind blowing. Like where the streets have no name sounded like the most important song <laughs> in the history of the world. Yeah, exactly, 75,000 yep. people singing it, right? <laughs> yep. The thing with the Grateful Dead is somehow they've stayed at that level. Like I don't really care for Dead and Company. I think they are not really doing the, the kind of thing I want from a dead project or cover band, however you want to describe it. You know, there is something about seeing those songs in a baseball stadium with 50,000 people that is, you know, you can't yeah. reproduce that. So that appeals to a lot of people. As I was saying earlier, like I, I never fully dove into the dead. I'm your age, 41. I, 
you know, grew up with them. My parents are classic rock fans. I knew all like the, the hits. And now as a dad, and again, with all this popularity and, the, you know, there's also the Netflix documentary was really great. Um, mm-hmm. I watched that as well. I feel like the ghost of Jerry Garcia, like lurking over my shoulder. <laughs> like you're going to get, you know, it's coming one day, Joe, just, you know, stick with it. One day you're going to, you're going to cave in. And I'm, I'm going to take the plunge. So I ask you, and you said there's a lot of resources out there, but where would you start for someone like me with the dead? First of all, it's interesting. I think like I, I had noticed this when everything started shutting down, you know, a few months ago, I felt like I saw a lot of people online saying like, I don't know what it is, but I'm suddenly getting into the dead and getting into fish. (laughs) And so I feel like there was some sort of like pandemic Mm -hmm. shutdown effect that made people finally take the leap to get into jam bands. And I think the appeal there is that there's just so much music to listen to. Uh, And if you suddenly find yourself with just like a ton of free time or a ton of time to really dig into a topic, you could do a lot worse than, hey, I'm going to listen to 500 (laughs) dead shows or I'm going to figure out what fish, what era of fish I like best or things like that. So, yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a great answer for the, the dead. I do have like a fish primer. This is how Steve and I met is he was writing an article about fish for Grantland when he was there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and he wanted to write about fish. He's, he was like, I've always wanted to get into fish, but I've never really known how to. Mm-hmm. And he had heard that I was like the one music critic who admitted mm-hmm. to liking fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he wrote me an email and I sent up a primer of like, here's all the different eras of fish and here are some shows from those eras and Pick what you like the best and dig into that era and then spread out from there. So it's the same with the dead where it, you know, every two years their sound changed a lot. This is going to sound like a plug for the podcast, but I think like the Dick's Pick series is the best way to go because the cool thing about the Dick's Pick series is that it's not chronological. It jumps around. So you'll get one volume will be from 1973. The next will be from 77. The next will be from... 1991 and then they'll jump back to 1970 if you just go in order through those volumes you'll quickly get a sense of like okay this band sounded like this in this year this band sounded like that in this year i like this version of the dead but i don't really care for that version of the dead so i'm gonna dig into what they were doing in 1972 or i'm gonna focus on 1977 got it and then they just have so many official live releases that you can just sort of fan out from there And then if you want more, you go on the Internet Archive and you can find every show in existence. They're the type of band where the more you listen to them, the more you appreciate them. Because like a lot of not just rock bands, but any musician, musical act that improvises, part of the pleasure is hearing how different versions of the same song change over time. So the more of those versions you have in your head, the more fulfilling it is to listen to a new version. So if you've sure. heard 50 different versions of Dark Star and then you hear another Dark Star, you can it's it's you're you're comparing that to the imprint in your mind of what's good about different Dark Stars. And you find all these little subtle differences that are really rewarding and fulfilling. So that's where it becomes like you just can't stop listening to them. So it's it's dangerous. As I said, it's addictive. <laughs> and, you know. Proceed with caution. But that's the way I would go about it. I would listen to the Dick's Picks, which are all on the streaming services. So it's really easy to, to access. Awesome. Okay. I just Sounds told Joe good. to listen to the stuff from like the early 70s. American Beauty, Working Man's Dead, Live 72, and then go off from there. But I'm not nearly, you know, as big a deadhead as you. I'm, you know, I like what I like, but I'm not. I, I haven't had the, uh, the fortitude to go dive 
deep into all that stuff. It's amazing to me how some of these fans like you just know all these things and like can say, oh yeah, this show at Cornell is like the best version of this song. I'm like, how? <laughs> like, you know, I've been down some rabbit holes myself and, you know, I'm sure like when you have a catalog like The Dead or even Fish, it's it's crazy. Yeah. And I'm like a baby compared to some people. Yeah. Like every show we do on 36 on the vault, people are like, why didn't you talk about how this was only the eighth version of this song to have a Jerry slide guitar solo and that, you know, this lyric that they changed. And I'm like, you just nobody can know everything about the yeah. dead. But, you know, it's fun to fun to dig into. I wanted to to go back to your uh, your rock writing and your, your rock critiquing because we were Joe and I were looking through some of your reviews and I, as you said you wrote like tons hundreds of reviews and I was kind of surprised at some of the stuff you did review because um, you know stuff that I listened to and when I've read reviews on Pitchfork of bands that I've liked I've always kind of went in sometimes I'd be like oh yeah this is correct but then a lot of times I'm like it's Pitchfork I gotta like kind of you know step step back you know from it realize you know these guys they kind of like to, to rip people down and, and tear people down when you were at Pitchfork first off did you feel like you were given the freedom to really express your true opinions or did you feel like you were pressured to, to write in a certain tone because I'm going to be honest and I don't take offense to this. A lot of snark was in a lot of the reviews that I was reading. So I don't know if that was like, you know, <laughs> something that you yourself, that's just your personality, or is that something that was kind of like a communal mindset? Well, it, it's interesting. Pitchfork today is nothing like it was 20 years ago when I started writing for them. <laughs> uh, and that's inevitable for any music mm-hmm. publication or anything. It's inevitable yeah, for, sure. for anything. But now they're like a big, you know, Condé Nast company. They have offices in the World Trade Center or whatever the new building on that site is. Like they are as, you know, as big as can be. They're neighbors with the New Yorker, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's it's ridiculous how big it's gotten. When I started writing for Pitchfork, it was one dude, Ryan Schreiber, who lived in Chicago and started the site and about 25 people scattered around the country that you can't even describe as freelancers (laughs) because nobody got paid. They were, they were freelancers with the emphasis on free. You got paid in promo CDs and it was people that were just writing for the hell of it. And Brian, wow. like bless him, built the site out of nothing and has just like endless enthusiasm for music that powered the site for a long time. But editing was not his forte. So he pretty much just let people write whatever they wanted and, you know, scanned it to make sure there was nothing libelous, though. That got through a couple times, I think. Well, I think, I think <laughs> um, you mentioned that Tweety took offense to the uh, the Dad Rock, um, I think moniker. Yeah, yeah, that came a yeah. lot later. Yeah, there's a famous story if you want to look it up about. Oh, there was a Beastie Boys review that we had to pull <laughs> because of like things in it, like they got threatened oh, with wow. legal wow. action. So, but those were like the Wild West days of Pitchfork, where nobody was telling you what to write about or what the score should be or mm-hmm. you know whether it should even be a positive or a negative review they just sent you a padded envelope full of cds and you picked out you listened to all the cds in there you picked out what you wanted to write about you wrote whatever you wanted about it and i was writing to like at that time i think pitchfork had a readership of like maybe 20,000 daily readers and i thought that was amazing i'm like 20,000 people are reading this this is crazy you know now it's in the millions yeah. of course like it's this big giant site so the pitchfork review 
you know, in all caps, can make or break a band's career. Sure. And is this huge weighty thing. And, you know, they gave Taylor Swift only an 8.0. <laughs> and so that writer got harassed the entire day for not yeah, giving it that. something higher than 8.0. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy <laughs> I don't write reviews for Pitchfork anymore because I don't want to deal with that at all. <laughs> like, I liked the days where I could just, you know, I never thought I was writing like the definitive review mm-hmm. of an album. What I liked about Pitchfork and what appealed to me and made me want to write for them at that time was that they weren't like Rolling Stone or Spin, which was doing this sort of like, you know, arrogant, objective, this is the decisive opinion on this work of art. Like Pitchfork was just like screwing around and writing like these extremely subjective, goofy reviews. And yeah, snarky, like you said, but also sometimes experimental and barely talking about the album at all or going off in some strange direction or making some weird comparison. And I love that. I love like the creative freedom of writing about music that way. And I never wanted anybody to say, oh, like Pitchfork has deemed this a good album or a bad album. I wanted people to say Rob Mitchum wrote an interesting and funny review about this album that maybe I totally disagree with, but I enjoyed the hell out of reading the review. And so I'm going to read more by him. That was always my goal was for people to just have a good time reading the review, even if it made them really cool. angry. Like yeah. that was fun. Like that was the way things were back then. <laughs> some of that doesn't really hold up over time. And I'm, I feel bad about that sometimes. Like there's some reviews that I regret that I wish weren't eternally on the internet. <laughs> and when you look at them now on pitchfork of today, like you have this mindset that it's like, Oh, yeah. it's pitchfork. Like this mm-hmm. is a big, important review, but I was just like goofing off. I was like a, you know, a poor kid, like living in DC, (laughs) nothing else to do except write music reviews. And now it's like a big, a big deal. So that's an uneasy mix sometimes. Is there an album that you'd like to, you know, a review that you, you you regret that comes to mind or an album that you you changed your mind on, like totally did a 180? Yeah. There's nothing that I've like completely fallen in love with that I bashed, Mm -hmm. but there's albums like one that I get the occasional flack for is, uh, you know, the band Desaparecidos, it was the Bright Eyes guy did like a political yes. punk album. Mm-hmm. People, that is like a cult album to a lot of people. And I, I approached it as at the time being like, nobody wants to hear this guy talk about politics, and <laughs> 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 which I kind of stand by. I mean, it was sort of like, it wasn't a totally wrong angle on the album, but I do mm-hmm. feel a little bad. And like, I'm probably more political now than I was back then. <laughs> and I go back to it and I'm like, hey, you know, like a lot of the things this guy was angry about actually turned out to be true. So I shouldn't have been so true. hard on old uh, Connor Oberst wanting to make a political album. So, you know, it's stuff like that that I, when people write me about it, I do say, yeah, you know, I wish I had given that a little more of a fair shake. But yeah, uh, for sure. Things like, what was it? The Weezer album. I gave it a 0.4 <laughs> and I still hear from Weezer fans about oh, that. No. I have no regrets about that. I have to say yeah. the Ben Queller Sha Sha album review is, is, that, oh, is wow, that yeah. is hilarious about how he's like, he's in the hall of Ben's now and you bring up Rivers Cuomo as Ben Rivers Cuomo. <laughs> like, and he's like, no, that's, I've totally made that name up for, for him. But like, uh, especially the, the early stuff, it makes a lot more sense. And I appreciate you, you know, giving me a new perspective on the mindset that was going on in the, in the early days of pitchfork somehow i got like a reputation as being one of the meaner critics at pitchfork which i if anybody who knows me in real life knows that i am a pretty docile nice person so it's it is kind of like a funny disconnect in terms of my like online persona and my my real life persona but 
part of it with too was like I always really felt like you know a lot of people just remember the numbers from yeah. Pitchfork reviews. It's like the sad thing where you could spend hours writing a thousand beautiful words about an album, but nobody's going to get past like the two digits at the top. <laughs> and I always felt like I should use the full scale of zero to ten because right. why would you have zero to ten if you weren't going to use the whole scale? So a lot of people, I think would see like a five point something at the top of my review and then read it as way more negative than I intended because to them a five something seems terrible when I was just like, it's an okay album. It should be in the middle of the scale. You know, it's funny how those things like shift over time. Uh, You know, I have no control over what Pitchfork became and now everything looks different in their archives. So it's, it's a weird effect. So I saw you reviewed the infamous Songs of Innocence, which was the uh, you know, the iPod rollout album. I have a buddy who's a, a complete U2 fanatic since college, known him for 20 years. That was a very dramatic time for him. And I just <laughs> want to know, given that you were given the to review that album, there was so much talk about it. Was there like a lot of pressure on that review? Just because it was like a big moment at, the, at that time. And a lot yeah. of so many people were against it. That was kind of, I think that's probably my last like memorable pitchfork review (laughs) for a lot of people (laughs) and one of my last ones i wrote i think and that was a case where i i think they really did pick me by that point in pitchfork they hadn't been moved to new york and yeah but there was a little more editorial control over like not so much like you need to write an album review that is this score but more like we know which reviewers are gonna like a particular album yeah so if we want to give it a good review we'll give that album to them and we know what reviewers are going to hate an album. So if we want to rip uh, rip something to shreds, we'll give it to them. Uh, and I think they very consciously were like, we need somebody to write a hit piece <laughs> on this U2 record. Who hates U2? Rob hates U2. Let's give it to Rob. And it's funny, like, I haven't read that review in a while. And I mean, I haven't listened to that <laughs> album either. I didn't particularly like that album. I think I might have saw them on that tour, actually. That Soldier Field the, story, yeah. I all. Yeah, it, it got a lot of attention. It's so, And I was not only reacting to like the big iPod rollout, iPhone rollout of that album, but also the, you know, mandatory gushing Rolling Stone review of that album because they're one of those bands that every time it comes out, like they get David Frick to write. David this, Frick like a, writes it, yep, every, every time. Yeah, a total yes. love letter, five-star review. So that was a case where they needed the old pitchfork role of being sort of the snarky kids that, you know, let the air out of the pompous Rolling Stone review. And I was happy to step up to the plate <laughs> and hit that one out. Yeah, a lot of people... People still talk to me about that review, too. That's that one sticks in people's minds. Nobody gets too angry about that review. I got to say, I've never, I don't <laughs> I don't go on the YouTube message board, so I don't know if there's <laughs> a dartboard with my picture on it. But uh, it was a fun one to write. We'll make sure to pass along any emails that Joe gets. <laughs> any complaints. For sure. Believe me, I'll be, my, my friends do listen to this and they are going to respond. I'm oh, sure. yeah. Don't worry. I'll have something to say. <laughs> Hey, Rob, it's uh, Steve here. I just had a, a quick question uh, related to the pitchfork thing is uh, it's funny is same thing going over you like your old reviews. And that era was the era for me and probably for us, too, uh, that I was downloading music probably mm-hmm. in some other ways. But so many of your reviews, I think, led to so like bang, bang, rock and roll, thunder, lightning, strike, icky thump, even though I was already a huge White Stripes fan. Do you find that at least for me? I'm like revisiting a lot of this music, I think also because it's, you know, what we're going through in the pandemic. But uh, are you actually buying old albums? Like, do you buy records? Do you buy CDs? Like, are you revisiting this stuff? Yeah, 
I mean, so I, th- this is also a very dad rock thing, but I got way back into vinyl, you know, nice. all of us. Have, yes. All yeah, of us exactly. have too. Yeah, the, yeah. At the same time, everybody else did. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm right. I'm in my basement right now, staring at my record collection. Um, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I also like the last few years, more so than that, I've gotten super into Bandcamp. and nice. Yeah, same here. Us here. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I thought a lot, I've read a lot and thought a lot about how can you be an ethical supporter of musicians yes. in the modern day and age. And, you know, this is not an earth shattering conclusion at all, but like, you know, streaming services are fine for sampling things, but you really should buy the records <laughs> and help people out. Agreed. And I've talked yes. to enough musicians that say Bandcamp has just been a miracle for them because Dude. it has given people a new way to very easily buy music and build a collection that they haven't had since, you know, CDs went away pretty much. My standard practice now is I'll check out new music on Spotify or on Bandcamp and if I listen to it more than a couple times, then I go out and then I buy it. I might not buy a physical copy. Yeah. But at I'll least digitally. At least the digital copy. And then on these, you know, mm-hmm. the Bandcamp Fridays they've been doing. Oh yeah. The last few months I just go nuts <laughs> because I'm like, <laughs> yes. I, I yeah. like feel like I need to do something for the world. Yeah. And this is like yes. the smallest thing I can do. But if I can Spread drop a couple hundred dollars on those days, I'm, I'm really spreading it around to people who need it. So yeah, that's been a real revelation for me the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Same here. I, I feel like we all would do, do it anyways, but then the fact that, yeah, we're not seeing live music. I think we're all doing it even more. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I've been paying for live streams uh, of people where I can awesome. and, awesome. you know, trying like to a nugs. Yeah, like the jam bands were really into it. Jam bands have always been ahead of the curve on technology and adapting to the weird modern music industry, right? Like the smartest thing you can do is be a band that goes out and plays a different show every night because people are going to want to see you every time and they're going to want to buy your live records. So, yes. um, So that has been a fun thing during all this. But then, yeah, bands like I watched a week or two ago, Yola Tango did a couple live performances and uh, Angel Olsen was one that I bought a couple like a month or two ago. And so, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I've really enjoyed, even before all this went down, I enjoyed the move towards streaming concerts because, you know, as a Dude. dad of young children, it's really hard to get out and see shows. So yeah. oh, yes. if, them, <laughs> if you have a good sound system, then you're good. You're set. Exactly. Like it's fun to do it at home with, you know, cheap drinks and no line, <laughs> no line for the bathroom. And you can, yeah. you know, go to bed and you don't smell like smoke and you don't have to like risk driving or, you know, spend a ton of money on an Uber getting home. And it, it, it's a, another you can still buy of, merch online. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it, it supports the band. And that's what I want is to make sure that my favorite bands can keep doing it right so yeah. i mean yeah. i i was like you i downloaded so much music you know i got promo cds from pitchfork but i was just like a download fiend in those days oh, yeah. like every you could try everything exactly and it was amazing and i still love spotify for that too like i know spotify yep. really screws people over with the rates but i, I just I can't get over the miracle it is of having all that music accessible yeah. wherever I'm at. Like it, there, Instantaneously there is, discover. Yeah. There is a force. There is a goodness in that. Even if the, the money side of it is a little shady, uh, yeah. that I think but they are you losing know, money. So, you know, they might, they might just, yeah, so. they're still losing money. Yeah. Blows my mind. <laughs> it's yeah. It doesn't make any sense million to me. Users. How? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I know they got to raise rates, I guess, but nobody, I guess is, 
For, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take that. Yeah, we actually talked about the whole Bandcamp thing the last episode, or the episode before, about like what I think Joe had a number like uh, that first Friday they oh, uh, like yeah. fifteen million dollars was spent or something like that. Yeah, that went directly to artists, which is amazing. We always end our shows with talking about songs we've been listening to and uh, we want people to, to know about. What bands or artists have you really been into lately that you may want to get the word out about? Yeah, so the, I guess, you know, the most recent thing, I'll bring it up again, was that Yola Tango put out this sort of ambient record that they made yeah. in the middle of all this shutdown business. That's just like a beautiful record to listen to. And they played a live show in that same style, which was great. There's a guy named Chris Forsyth, who I like a lot, who I've totally oh, yeah, sure. gotten into on like the sort of band camp era of my music mm-hmm. consumption. And oh, Joe showed that with me. Yes, yeah, I sent you that. Yeah, for sure. He's a guitarist, a really good guitarist and kind of yeah. plays like another term I coined, quote unquote, that didn't really <laughs> catch on as much as dad rock is indie jam. So bands that <laughs> okay. are rooted in indie rock, but play sort of jammed out improvisational music yes, and Chris is just sure. a great example of that who is like it's jammy but it's more jammy in like a television or Velvet Underground way totally than totally. like a Grateful yeah, Dead nice. Fish way cool yes, uh, and television. he has over the course of the last few months been putting out a bunch of live albums of shows he played uh, just before the shutdown all of them are with different lineups and they're all great like there's one with a band called Garcia Peoples the younger jam bands that has been getting a lot of heat lately uh Mm -hmm. which is great and then one he just put out with uh another guitarist named dave harrington who is really brilliant too Those have been uh, things I've been falling back on. There's a band in Chicago that I always like to shout out called Natural Information Society. It's led by a, a mm. bass player named Joshua Abrams. Though in Natural Information Society, he plays an instrument called the Jimbri. I believe you say it. It's either Gimbri or Jimbri, which is sort of a bass, like a, a bass that has a very like percussive quality to it, like sort of an older style instrument. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays shows and puts out albums that are basically just like 60 minutes of continuous music. It's, it's like a little cool. bit drone, a little bit jazz, a little bit new agey and how meditative it is. His wife plays in the band and she plays a harmonium. So it's got this nice drone. He's got a bass clarinetist who plays with him. He also is a guy that juggles lineups a lot. So every show is different. But he's somebody I'm always pointing to. Uh, Natural Information Society, has, they've done some really amazing stuff. And it's, it's very nice and calming, which is what I need right now. We really thank you for being on the show, Rob. And 
you know, it was really a complete pleasure having you on. So thank you for coming on to the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So now we're going to go in and talk about what we're listening to today. But before that, we're going to throw in a new, a quick new thing for Joe and I, uh, what our kids are listening to right now. So Joe, what, what is your, your, are your kids' favorite songs right now? So right now, strangely enough, my son who's 13 tells me he's not really into much music at all. I was trying mm-hmm. to get some selections from him. Mm-hmm. Um, he did mention someone that he's, he's mentioned a lot the last like year, year and a half is this rapper Juice World who yep. passed away last year at only, he was only 21, but he is huge in his age group. Uh, all his friends listen to him. He listens to him. I and mean, actually he just had an album come out even though it passed away. A new album just dropped called Legends Never Die. But the song that he played for me a few times is called Lucid Dreams, which is like his big hit. I take prescriptions to make me feel okay. I know it's all in my It up it has over 530 million views on youtube so it's, it's kind of it's kind of big it's kind of yeah it's a little traction insane way bigger than anything where it's any bands that we're talking yeah, about basically <laughs> 530 so it's not bad it sounds like a post malone kind of style so he's been kind of into that my daughter who's nine just into general usually pop music although she's more prone to if i have music on start singing along to music that we're listening to the other day actually last night we we're putting together a dresser in her room and we had this mix on of a lot of new music that I've been playing on my radio show and she was singing along to uh, this song Initiative from the uh, the band Shopping It's a belligerent style of play and you're resisting the change just Which Great is like song. doing a post-punk band that I play a lot on my show. So she kind of gets into, you know, she sings along. But she likes kind of the general, like Ariana Grande kind of pop music. And again, a lot of her songs that she likes are all from TikTok. You know, for me, again, my son just turned 23 months today. So he's one month away from being two. It's pretty amazing that he can still pick up songs and he has, you know, personal favorites. And they usually last for a week and then he gets into something else. You know, through the songs that we introduce him to or like he'll cycle through all these Sesame Street songs. At night, my wife will, part of his bedtime routine, even though you're not supposed to, is just give him a little screen time because we don't really let him watch TV and stuff right now. So we will play him like different Sesame Street stuff. And then what popped up about a week or two ago was the song Moving Right Along by the Muppets from the Muppet movie. Moving right along with the birds of a feather. We're in this together and we know where we're going. Movie stars with flashy cars and life with the top down. We're storming the big town. 
And then my, my son just like right now just really loves that. He always just like Fozzie Bear, Fozzie Bear. Like so he just wants to hear that song like played over and over and over again. I and I don't mind because I really like the song. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm a big Muppets fan. I'm glad he likes that that music because it's it's again it's a solid song in my in my view. But that's what he's been listening to right now. Let's uh, get now into what we're listening to. And Joe, why don't you go first? Sure. So um, the last few episodes, I've been mentioning a lot of new music. I've been playing on my radio show. One song that I think become my song of the year pick for 2020 mm-hmm. is Brendan Benson's Richest Man. Mm-hmm. It's just a phenomenal song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in a perfect world, I always use the phrase like in a perfect world, like that song should be like a huge anthem. Everybody mm-hmm. should know it. Just this week, he, he was on the Colbert show. He did a really cool version, you know, a virtual version where he plays guitar, bass and drums and sings all together. Just a great song. I know Josh has the vinyl of it, which I should yeah. definitely be picking up shortly. And of course, he's just, you know, co-leader of one of our favorite bands, The Raconteurs. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, The Strokes new album, The New Abnormal, one of my all-time favorite bands. Great to have them back in our life with new music. songs that I just love from this album, The Adults Are Talking, the opening track, Brooklyn Bridge to Chorus, and Bad Decisions are just, to me, great summer songs, songs to, you know, blast mm-hmm. while you're driving down, you know, down the shore, oh, yeah. anywhere. It's a very solid album, but those songs really stick out to me. And lastly, band Best Coast has a great single called Different Light. Great summer music. They have a new album, Always Tomorrow. The lead singer, Beth Costantino, is from Jersey, mm-hmm. but she's been in California for a long time. Always talks about the West Coast and California and L.A. But the song's about getting her getting sober after many years of struggling with alcohol. Very cool lyrics from Best Coast. Cool. I want to check that out for sure. And Steve, what, what's up with you? First choice, I had uh, finally bought, because there's obviously bootleg galore and live shows galore for the White Stripes. And uh, I put in the pre order for the Stooges upcoming uh, Third Man release. It's like a live show that they kind of unearthed. Nice. And I was like, well, let me throw on some White Stripes. And I was initially going to do Elephant, but then I ended up choosing Under Great White Northern Lights because I don't have anything live by them. And I revisited the album. It's so good. Some of the performances Mm -hmm. are just... They found their groove, even the way his vocals, it just hit its right groove. But Ball and Biscuit on that album has a new arrangement with organ and just his guitar solo at the end is phenomenal.
Awesome. Great, great stuff. And I can't wait to get that. And then um, there's a experimental avant-garde metal band that I've been into through my buddy. He's got mm-hmm. a really broad taste. And Boris is the most interesting live show I've ever seen in my life. It's just a spectacle in some ways, and it's very minimalistic in other ways. This was a single that is a 35-minute single. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, but it's phenomenal. It's like it's like a co-album with this band ZOA. Again, they're not like thrash or like death metal. They're just very experimental metal. So some parts have a lot of melody. Some parts have a lot of like almost the things you would hear in the new Hum album, almost like progressive-y, shoegazy kind of vibes. And they're from uh, Japan, right? They're from Japan, yeah. And then throwing it out to the vinyl collection, I got a Vinyl Me Please that was a swap. And uh, I could have gotten uh, John Mayer Continuum, but I'm just not as big of a fan of that album. I feel like I would like his later stuff. So I switched over to uh, this hip hop album, Handsome Boy Modeling School. And the album is called So How's Your Girl? And it's Dan the Automator and I believe Prince Paul. They basically joined forces and did this really eclectic hip hop album. And the song Holy Calamity Bear Witness is actually a collaboration with DJ Shadow. me that's like one of my favorites as far as electronic hip-hop goes you know it's just a phenomenal song i will say i personally love the album continuum by john mayer i think that's you know it's it's you do okay i see it's great i mean it's it's the one he recorded with uh steve jordan and, and pino paladino and it's just like it really is a phenomenal is it more like experimental and more no 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 no, no. Oh, it's really interesting it's like a laid back well done Ooh. i really like that album like that's mm. it's I, I never listened to a john mayer album i will say yeah i would say Same. i would definitely go listen to that one and listen to the the live john mayer trio album uh yes that's what i want to hear it's just him steve jordan and pino paladino but mm. yeah definitely go listen to that but i haven't been listening to that i've been listening to um i got really excited because uh, my morning jacket finally yeah. released new material um it's been what five years i think since the the waterfall came out and they released the waterfall 2 which is basically they didn't go back and, and record anything new it's just literally extra songs from the the first recording session for the, the waterfall because wow. uh, supposedly it was going to be a 3 LP or you know 3 disc album uh, they had just so much stuff and you know initially Jim James was talking about releasing a second album like right after that but then he went off and really did his uh, solo work so they released it and actually you know I've listened to it a few times and I actually like it as an album better than and the waterfall. I think it's a really solid album. It's a little bit more, you know, uh, laid back. But I, mm. I love the song uh, "Wasted."
definitely has like a uh, a vibe from Z. It, it reminds me of of Off the Record because they they have the song and then they have this jam at the end, and it it definitely feels more like for me the 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 My Morning Jacket that I really love. And you know, I'm hoping I can see them live again because I haven't seen them since they did their Thanksgiving Day run at, at the Beacon. But definitely, you know, this is a great album to check out. Going back to Modesky Martin and Wood, like I mentioned, uh, their drummer, Billy Martin, uh, released a, a new album recently, and I just checked it out. It's called Guilty. For those of you who like almost like hip hop beats and, and just like that, like that kind of backing track type stuff. It's great, funky, just chill music. Not like super chill, but like, you know, something you could throw on in the background and really just enjoy. And he's a great drummer. And I think he plays bass on this one, too. I know Mark Rabot is on part of the album. I'm not sure if any other guests are on, but like definitely um, if you're into like, you know, some some cool, funky stuff, like check this one out. And then uh, recently I wanted to bring up this album, which I had never listened to that I now regret not listening to when it came out. It's um, this one off band kind of a semi super group uh, called Middle Brother uh, with Taylor Goldsmith of Dawes, uh, Matt Vasquez of Delta Spirit and John J. McCauley III of Deer Tick. And it came wow. out in 2011. It's a self-titled you know, album. When this album came out, I think I had just heard Dawes and I think their second album had come out at that point. And then um, I was into Delta Spirit, but I didn't really know Deer Tick and what I had heard I was not into. So I kind of like strayed away from this album. But going back and listening to it, I really regret it. Like it's, it's a great album and it really like encompasses that like Americana style uh, music that all these guys were writing in at that time and I highly suggest it. There's a lot of great tracks on there but the one I would definitely check out is uh, the, the, the I think it was the biggest hit if there was a hit off of their final track on the album it's called Million Dollar Bill So when these rich men that she wants show her ways they can take care of her I'll have found a way to be there with her still Like this album, um, I I can't find it on vinyl anywhere. Like I, it's like the only copies you wow. can find are like ninety dollars or something. You know, people still sell this like ten inch uh, that they released, but there must have been a limited run. If I can find one for under hundred bucks, that'd be great. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the interview with Rob Mitchum. We sure did. You can find his work at robmitchum.github.io and check out his Grateful Dead podcast with Stephen Hyden called 36 from the Vault. Remember, if you like the show, we'd love for you to subscribe and tell your fellow music-loving dads or moms or anyone to check out the podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Dad Rocks Pod, And also, we're on Facebook, so you can search us up there. If you have any questions, comments, or anecdotes for us, or just want to give us a shout, you can email us at dadrockspod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Also, we have a Spotify playlist of all the music you have heard on the podcast today. Well, actually, some of the music you've heard, or most of the music you've heard on the podcast today. 
which should be linked in the podcast description. If not, just search up Dad Rocks with the exclamation point at the end, and you should see our playlists. We have playlists from previous episodes as well, so go check them out. We also wanted to let you know that we are going to start dropping some mini episodes every now and then where we feature certain nonprofit organizations that are important to us that are really struggling financially due to the current pandemic. The first one of these mini-sodes will feature Apple Farm Arts and Music Campus, an organization that is near and dear to me personally. So be on the lookout for it very soon. Again, thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe. And as always, dads, you rock. You rock.